Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to the 10th of our weekly podcast of Practice Managers. This is a recording of the webinar run on Wednesday the 3rd of June. Welcome to our weekly webinar for Practice Managers. It's um, great to have so many of you um, on the call with us. So um, just to let you know, we've got um, Nigel, um, our Chief Executive, um, giving us an, um, an overall update today. Cal Cusack, our Director of Primary Care, is going to give us then a more of a local flavour um, with um, Michelle um, Lombardi and Helene Irvin also giving us some, some expert tips as we go along. Um, so without any further ado, I'll hang on over to Nigel. Thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I hope everybody's well and has uh, taken some advantage of the nice weather. Um, generally, um, things are in a stable state, I'd say. The R number um, recently has been 0.7. So the you can see from the national uh, picture, but it's also reflected locally, that the uh, number of new cases of COVID has gone down. The number of people who need to be admitted to hospital has reduced and the number of people who go on to critical care and be ventilated has reduced. So generally in the south of England and particularly with us locally, those levels are have fallen and are continuing to fall. Quite what will happen in two weeks time when we see the um, results of people um, opening, well, it's not so much the opening up of social distancing, but some of the reckless behaviour you saw at the weekend in the Dorset beaches and other areas, we'll wait and see what happens. Um, it isn't the same case across the country. So the, the, a couple of weeks ago, there was a big spike in Western Supermare. There is more COVID activity in the north of England, which probably means going forward, um, we not only need to keep an eye on the national picture, but what this means locally. So the expectation at the moment and the modelling that's going on is that we're likely to get a winter peak and the winter peak will happen in September and October. So you look at those nice graphs, it's sort of peaked quite quickly and then fallen off. Well, the modelling graphs look like the activity in August, September will increase into October. And they're modelling that on um, the R number of being 1.1, 1.2 and 1.3. And the consequences of that is actually if we get a significant increase and we get the R number goes to 1.3, that will have a major impact on all our services, including hospital services. So we can't be complacent, but I think at the moment we can be reassured that the action we took significantly reduced the potential of what happened in the in the first wave. Um, so building on that, there's clearly a lot of focus on um, testing, particularly looking at the swabbing and now the antibody testing. And the antibody testing I'll come to later because I think it's a whole um, discussion by itself. If you then look at what that means, um, I said in some of my recent newsletter updates, we're now moving into a different phase of this disease. So practices and everybody else responded brilliantly um, to the COVID crisis phase and manage that phase, turn off everything else, focus on that. But now we're coming to the point of, well, we're probably past the point where practices are reporting that the non-COVID work has returned. And we're in the second phase of trying to, um, NHS England have called it um, restoration and recovery. And there are a number of streams of work going on. So essentially what we're looking to do is say, if we think this is going to carry on for the next six to nine months and there is no 
evidence that it's going to suddenly stop unless we can bring in mass vaccination. So how are we going to manage over the next six to nine months? So cold sites need to increase the amount of patients they see, keeping in place the total triage, the video consultation, the remote working as the mainstay, but more people are going to need to be seen face-to-face, whether that's in the surgery or home visiting. How do we do that safely? The second bit is if we start stepping down all our hot sites because the activity is quite low, can we step them up again quickly if we run into a problem? And my answer is yes, of course we can, because we've we've had a run at this once and, and people responded amazingly quickly we know what to do and we've learned some lessons from that there are also another a, a, a number of other streams of work which look at things like self-management and prevention um, the shielded patients which again i'm going to talk about separately and care homes the digital what have we learned so far and a lot of lessons have been learned about using digital to our benefits and how do we ensure that those remain and we don't suddenly lose them because all those benefits are turned off And then there's the bit about um, how we return to some form of normality in terms of uh, the screening, immunization and management of long-term conditions. So I've been involved in sort of discussions within um, the various areas, but also in regional calls and national calls. And what is clear to me is that the solutions come from you. They aren't going to come nationally. We may get some guidance like the operating Uh, procedures, the standard operating procedures or the SOPs, but they don't give us the details of actually how you do it. They're very very much strategic documents. So there's a lot of stuff going on and we're linking in with people locally and actually sharing a lot of that. So if I just cover two particular things, one is um, about the testing and this is about the antibody testing. So as you know, the national antibody testing is now widely available or will become widely available. or has been advertised as being widely available. Many practices have looked on ice or whatever and the clinicians can't find it, but it will be there. And I think the, the risk of the antibody testing is that people think, well, I can have a test. It will tell me if I've been infected in the past, which will mean I've got antibodies, so I'm now immune. So let me just be absolutely clear. There's two roles for the antibody testing. One is to look in a community test and see how many people have been infected. So if you look at a population base, this is a public health measure to identify what the extent of that is. And there's lots of benefits and research to that. So how many people never knew they had the infection? How many people were severely affected? How many people were managed at home or self-managed knowing they got a mild version of it? So. There is some advantage from a public health point of view. There may, and I repeat, may be some advantage in the future, knowing if you've got antibodies, which may give you some immunity. But at the moment, we have no knowledge and we've got no evidence that having antibodies will give you immunity either to mitigate the infection you might catch or protect you in the future. So anybody that's asking for an antibody test Um, that isn't for the public health reason, is doing it just out of personal interest. You cannot, and I repeat, cannot then make a judgment that you could work in a hot site without PPE or put yourself in a more risky position because obviously I've got antibodies, so I'm protected. You are not protected. We do not have that evidence. So 
we shouldn't be using it as an occupational health measure to change the way people are working. Evidence will come from around the world as time goes on. But at the moment, this is still a new virus. We don't know if it's going to mutate. We don't know whether the antibodies at a certain level will give you immunity or won't give you immunity. So I think we just need to be very careful about how that antibody testing is done and is interpreted. If practices are going to offer it, and I use the word if, you're not obliged to offer it, there's two bits. One is, is somebody going to commission a public health agenda, which means that um, we're going to test populations, in which case that's a separate commission service. If you're going to do a blood test for another reason and you want to offer the patient and there may be some benefit to uh, the population knowing how many people are infected, you will be able to do it. But the caveat to that is you need informed consent. So the person needs to know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and the pros and cons, because there are false negatives to this as well as false positives. So it's not a 100% accurate test that will tell you one thing or another. And also, people need to know how they get the results and how to interpret the results. So I just wanted to be really clear. And your obligations as an employer is to risk assess your staff and manage your staff in that appropriate way. You are not an occupational health service. So um, I hope that's clear. And if there are questions, I'm happy to come back and either answer them in the box or um, have uh, Louise or somebody else pose them later and have a discussion. The second bit I just wanted to bring up was the shielded patients, which um, if we were to rerun this, I and I suspect many others wouldn't have done what we've done so far, which I know has caused a huge amount of work for practices. And I think it was done with the best of intentions early on, not to trouble practices, to try and get the list of shielded patients from elsewhere. But what it absolutely demonstrated that actually if they wanted a comprehensive list of patients who needed to be shielded, they should have done it through general practice first. We could have produced the lists much more effectively and be much more accurate. But that's all in the past. Looking forward, as you know, they announced that shielded patients could go out um, and but the shielding was going to continue as obviously the COVID problem hasn't settled. But again, what I want to be clear on is what we said before is that the shielded patients doesn't mean that you have to visit them all, that if it's appropriate, you could bring them into the surgery for face-to-face um, -face consultation or te tests or treatment room. But if you're going to do that, you need to risk assess the individual. So if somebody's having chemotherapy and got no immunity at all because it's been wiped out with chemotherapy, clearly you wouldn't bring them into a surgery. But we also need to remember that if we've got troops of people going into a home, that's the risk of bringing infection into the home. Now, the standing operating procedure that's just been published, the, only, the, the main significant change was about the um, <clears throat> shielded patients being able to go out. And what it does make clear in that is that you, you need to assess what the, if you're going to need to have a contact with a patient, what's that? What's most clinically appropriate? So it doesn't mean that you need to go and visit these patients. You can bring them into the surgery. And many practices have um, set themselves up. So for example, the shielded patients may be seen first thing in the morning in a cold site where it's been adequately cleaned and the patients are brought in at intervals so that they're at reduced risk. Um, for some, it may be that you need to visit at home and we, you need to be careful about reducing those visits to the minimum and using video consultations wherever you come. So that's the shielded patients. The final bit I would just mention about um, 
dare I mention the dreaded word flu vaccination. So um, you will know that um, the flu vaccination season comes around every year and September, October, November, a busy time. Um, there's an additional dimension this year or several additional dimensions. So on one level, um, you well, you know, you're, you're the experts at delivering mass vaccination programs. But this year, the expectation is that more people may ask for flu vaccination. So we may need to do more. And there obviously then comes where do we get the additional vaccine is. And my understanding, and I have no confirmation of this, is that there is more vaccine being procured nationally. So I don't think unless you hear differently that you're being asked to procure more at this point in time, assuming you've procured enough of both sorts of vaccine, which I think most practices have. The, the then comes the challenge about how you vaccinate people with social distancing and um, processing the numbers we need to do. So there are there is a group that we are we have set up and are working with others to look at the various options, learning from um, New Zealand and Australia where they're vaccinating people at this very minute, um, and also looking at evidence from around the world, but also building on the expertise from practices and things that have been done already. So we hope to get some information out to you in the not too distant future to say, these are suggestions which you might think about doing. The other challenge obviously is, um, so we go for a flu vaccine program in September, October time when the predicted second peak comes. So we want to bring lots of people in to a site where potentially there might be more circulating um, COVID in the community. So naturally we would be wearing PPE to deliver this, but it just um, adds another challenge to it. Also, um, it may be unlikely, but it is possible that at the same time, a um, COVID vaccine may become available. They're now into the phase two of testing um, in Southampton and other centers. And there is a um, suggestion that there might be um, 30 million doses available um, in the autumn, but nobody knows quite where the autumn is. I personally, and I, again, I don't know this, but it seems unlikely that we'll get all those vaccines ready and available at the same time as we've got the flu vaccine, but, but there may be some overlap and who knows, the evidence is still not there yet about the effectiveness of the vaccine. They're still working on that. So I think that's probably enough from me. So I'll, I'll finish there. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Nigel. Um, can I just ask you just one question that's come up, just because it's just come up about antibody testing. Any thoughts regarding antibody testing of staff if they request it? So I think you need to know why your staff want it. Um, I think most of it, as, a, as again, I'd say it's out of interest to know whether I've had it or not. That it doesn't change the way that you are going to deliver those service to your patients. So they shouldn't change the way they behave or how you deploy them in your practice. So, you know, that's up to individual practices, whether they want to offer that service, but also remember if you order the test, you then need to be responsible for giving the result to the individual and explaining what that result means. Thank you, Nigel. Carol, can I hand over to you now to do this bit more of a local flavor? I just want to add a little bit to what Nigel's just said there as well, because we've had a couple of questions in about, um, you know, can we register our staff as temporary residents and, and do the test? No, you can't, um, is, is, is the straight answer to that. So if you were going to do this, as Nigel says, you're pretty well acting as an occupational health service and that has implications for you, um, you know, later on down the line, if somebody then does 
catch it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we are um, warning you really to be really careful. Um, so the, the stuff we want to um, continue with today then, so as Nigel's mentioned, we're into restoration and recovery, and I think a lot of you want to know what that means and what the priorities should be. So as we know, um, childhood immunisations didn't stop at all, and they will continue. Um, and again, you need to find ways around making sure that patients can be vaccinated or children can be vaccinated quite safely. Um, we have heard from Public Health England that the schools vaccination programme, they are looking at restarting that at some point. We don't know how that's going to work. As you know, the schools are going back um, sporadically. Your position at the moment is that unless there was a child in the cohort that missed their school's vaccination for reasons other than COVID, you can do those, but only those. So if children have missed it because schools have been um, closed because of COVID, the school's programme is going to pick those up and is going to relaunch their, their programme in the near future. That's all the detail we've got at the moment. So if you get parents coming and saying, my child's missed their HPV vaccine or whatever, school's programme is going to pick it back up and you don't need to do anything at this stage. So I just want to make that clear. Um, the other thing, um, actually, we'll, we'll keep on this theme, I think. So I'm going to pass over to Helene and then Michelle to talk about some of the work around um, minor surgery, spirometry, cervical screening, all that stuff, because we know that is all coming back on stream and we've got a bit of uh, advice for you there. So I'll go to you first, Helene, please. Hi, hello, hello everybody. Um, we've had a number of questions and queries coming in particularly around uh, spirometry and the ARTP the Association for Spiritry and Technology and Physiology today with the British Thoracic Society um, updated their guidance around spirometry and COVID on uh, May the 26th um, and it's worth having a look at that document. They, it's, it's, it is quite secondary care focused but they do mention primary care towards the end of it in the conclusion of the document they acknowledge, obviously, there's going to be an increased demand for um, assessments and there's a huge backlog uh, and there's some staffing issues associated with that. But basically, in summary for the conclusions, because it is an aerosol-generated procedure, uh, their recommendations are that routine respiratory function testing should no longer occur in primary care practices unless it's part of a coordinated hub based around PCNs with all the appropriate precautions. Now, because it is a um, aerosol-generated procedure, if you did want to do it at a PCN level, you would need to have full PPE. And uh, Dawn or myself can send you a link to the PHE document on what PPE you have to wear during these procedures. One of the other challenges is that um, it's the cleaning of the equipment. So there's added time taken. Um, and also, it's the exchange of air in the room. In fact, um, Public Health England recommends six air changes per hour and wherever a procedure takes place. So that needs to be considered. Um, and also, obviously, make, make sure that staff are wearing PPE for the safety of themselves and for patients. Um, so it's an evolving field. More research is being done all the time on it. I think they will keep updating it, but we will send you a link to that page and you can have them. Um, you can have a look at that yourself. They do say that you should treat every patient as potentially having um, having COVID. 
It'll be the routine thing about um, checking the temperatures when they arrive, ensuring they're not symptomatic and warning them about that when they book the appointments and afterwards. Um, and it's about having flow around the um, uh, around the surgery. And there's some quite good information um, on that. Irrigation falls into a similar category. Um, the sort of font of all knowledge around air and um, irrigation is the um, the Rotherham site. They're not currently doing irrigation uh, because it's getting about um, AGP. And if you were to do it, you'd have to wear full PP equipment, and that would include um, the FFP3 masks. Though it's interesting if you actually have a look on the website and search for private organisations doing micro suction, they are offering appointments. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because obviously we can't guarantee um, their infection control or PPE process. That's very much obviously will be up to the patients. And I know this is a challenge because um, you know when patients do present with problems with hearing, it can be quite debilitating. So I think it's up to practice to decide whether you actually have the capabilities and the capacities to actually fulfil that. Going on to minor surgery, um, the one we wanted to focus on. Okay, so quickly, joint injections. There's um, lots of mixed advice around this subject, uh, but the concern really is that steroids may increase the risk adverse outcomes from COVID. Um, so that you need to proceed with um, caution. It's about weighing up the risks and the benefits for the patient, the individual patient, and making sure they're informed. The British Society for Rheumatology says um, it must not be undertaken in individual with any size of infection. This is supported by the WHO. The challenge really is for a lot of patients, the joint is about the pain management, you know, that increases their quality of life and their mobility. Um, so it's, and often the patients who fall into this are a higher risk group, then notably the elderly and those with comorbidities, uh, which can result in higher mortality rates. So. You have to consider the risk, um, the risk of exposure, and also you have to weigh up the risks and the benefits. And again, we will send you to some link on our webpage um, uh, around that. Minor surgery, it appears that some practices have started recommencing things such as removal of skin lesions, possibly related to cancer, um, and toes. Uh, again, have to take into consideration adequate PPE, um, cleaning of your premises, patients flow around the building, um, having to wear patients having to wear masks, not touch surfaces where possible, uh, availability of hand gel, etc. And then the issue around cleaning the room and the equipment afterwards and surfaces. And as Nigel says, we are actually um, putting together a sort of an operational document, and we will have some links on that that you can have a read both um, locally and, uh, and nationally. Thanks, Tony. Can I just ask you whether a couple of pertinent questions have popped in? Um, if you do want to still deliver ear irrigation, can you provide guidance for that? Or are you saying you shouldn't be doing it at the moment? We're not saying you shouldn't be doing it. If you want to do it, you have to remember it's an aerosol generated procedure and you have to wear adequate PPE. And you must make sure there's the cleaning of the equipment, cleaning of the room, and patients are informed of the risks, obviously in potential exposure to COVID and coming into the practice. So it's weighing out the risks and the benefit. But it's it's a, a decision that individuals have to practices have to take really. Okay. And also one of the practice managers has heard today that coils and implants can be restarted. Is this evidenced anywhere? It's not evidenced anywhere. There's a really good link on the FSRH website about coils and implants. Um, again PPE, the usual thing, patients being asymptomatic. Again, we put a link on our document to this. Um, 
But then I think Nigel might want to contribute to that. But there is some evidence to say you can actually delay, can't you, um, reinstation yeah. of, of coils. But, so. but, but we know, I mean, the, the idea at the beginning was we thought this was going to be a massive um, spike and then it would fall off, where now we're, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So I think it's not unreasonable to restart it. And as Helene says, the Faculty of Sexual Health have produced some quite good guidance. I think practices can restart it. But again, it's the same as everything else. You need to risk assess it and make sure um, the person that's doing it or the people that are doing it are doing it safely to protect the patients and protect the individual. So I think as so long as you've got the procedure worked through and you keep the contact to a minimum, um, it, it is, um, as, as anything, there is nothing that's 100% safe in, in anything we do anyway, but you can reduce the risks that I think the more stuff that we were doing before that we can restart, but restart safely. But again, the message I give to practices is build up, don't try and open everything up at once, you know, start doing things as they become um, a priority to get going. But yeah, you can you can restart them because it's exactly the same as the smears restarting doing similar things. Okay, and um, Carol, I think you wanted to come in. Yeah, just to say, um, actually, I mean, it, it's, I know it's not right, but there is a little bit of pressure on this because the local authorities are in charge of the funding for larks and implants and, and things like that. And what we're hearing from them is from most of them, and we haven't heard from all of them, but we are pushing it, that they will pay for quarter one and quarter two based on average activity for last year or the activity of that quarter for last year. They are starting to tell us that from July, it will be back to activity based. Now, as Nigel and Helena both said, we're sure if, if there is another spike, those programs will get stopped again. But at the moment, what we're being told is that if the activity is not done from July, then the payment's not going to be forthcoming either. We know the GPC is aware of this. We know that they're um, talking to the local government association, etc. But I think it's just worth mentioning that that's that's the scenario at the moment. Whereas you know, GMS funding is more um, uh, guaranteed. Yeah, I would add to that. If you look at the local authority budgets, they have been. Um, squeezed quite significantly and in the past been cut and although they've been given additional funds to cope with covid they they are still looking forward at severe financial pressures so as carol says we've pushed all the local authorities and it's being pushed nationally but i think many are going to take the route that they'll pay on activity okay thanks nigel and carol and i think there's just one comment in helene that a minor surgery nurse has suggested that all patients are isolated two weeks before and afterwards they've had the minor surgery and i think that your document that we're coming out will be will give help to nurses as well won't it on the best procedures for that sort of thing yes it will i mean as uh, nigel may want to comment on this as well but i think some are saying aren't they that they have to um potentially have swabs done as well nigel is that correct before they go into hospital okay. test so let's differentiate. If you go into hospital for a major operation, then they are self-isolating for two weeks and swabbing before to check they're not bringing COVID into hospitals. Because there is some good evidence that um, at least 10% of admissions who are, uh, do not have COVID catch it um, as they go into hospital. So there is a, a difference between going into a hospital, having a procedure 
and by doing that puts you at significant additional risks. So I wouldn't be suggesting that if you're doing minor surgery in a practice that you should be self-isolating and swapping before. I think you need to ask yourself the question, which is, why am I doing the minor surgery and is this essential or isn't it? Um, that's the question to me rather than getting, um, I think it's about proportionate responses. Okay, thank you, Nigel. I think, um, Michelle, I think we were going to come to you, weren't we, after Helene? So I don't know if you want to add your bit on cytology. Yeah, so I was going to talk a bit about cervical smears. So Helene's mentioned the FSRH and Carol mentioned um, the document that the GP and, uh, GP and Rachel has worked on last week. And just to be aware, they are on our website and available for you to look at, which focus on reintroducing these, um, in, reintroducing smears and coils. I think it was really just to um, update to say that the letters were switched off back in April, um, these, the screening invites for cervical smears, and they are being switched on next week. So from the 9th of June, um, patients will start to get to receive these invites again. I think we completely understand some of the anxiousness and nervousness for practices around managing demand and adapting services and your surgeries to be able to provide these services. Um, we are aware that when invites go out, there's some data that suggests that only 5% of patients will respond and book an appointment for smears. And there is a concern that there's going to be a peak of these in in winter, particularly in November, which nationally they're aware of. So what we're asking practices to do, if you are struggling to fulfill and feel overwhelmed with providing cervical smears to your patients, please can you let us know? Because we believe that there may be an option to pause invites again, but we need to know from you if you're struggling to provide that. I'm so sorry. Carol, um, did you want to come back to you to have um, a bit more of local information? Yeah, so really, I think just just the last bit of um, that we want to talk about is um, I don't think Nigel, did you mention about the fact that there's some private companies offering antibody testing as well? I think we wanted to say something about um, that. Yeah, I, yeah, we know that there are companies producing it. Um, we had a technical description from one of our medical directors this morning, which I barely understood, so I, I won't um, read it to you, but. Essentially, the very few tests are 100% accurate. And when they did the early antibody tests, they were only about 60% accurate because obviously COVID is one of the coronaviruses and it was picking up other viruses. So um, there are concerns about um, people producing tests to sell to practices and then practices rely on them. Our general advice is you shouldn't be you certainly shouldn't be charging patients for testing. Um, and our advice would be not to go down the private route if you think there is a clinical indication to do it. And we struggle to see what the clinical indication is, um, unless it's for the population health bit, that you should do it through the NHS route. But even then, there is a small, it is not 100% accurate. The other thing probably to say is um, more for people in Hampshire, but there are some single point tests being done in hospital with a 20 minute reporting. And just to be clear, the antibody testing that we're doing, that we might do and others might do to see whether you are immune or whether you've had the, the virus, this is sent off to the lab and looked for one of the uh, immunoglobulins called IgG, which shows that you've had a past infection. What they're using in A&E is a single point of test looking for something called IgM, 
which rises and responds when you get when you you've just been infected so that's looking at and that's on a fingerprint and the result is available in 20 minutes so it's a different form of testing so if you get approached by private companies to say would you like to buy these they'll be really useful uh, personally i would resist doing that i don't think you'll find them as useful as uh, the company thinks they are to you Thanks, Nigel. Um, and there's only one other thing I really wanted to, to mention today. Some of you will probably already be aware of this, but just in case you're not, um, NHS Digital is now starting to count the number of appointments um, that you provide. Um, the GPC, again, has already uh, alerted them to the fact that this isn't an accurate description of the workload of general practice. Um, because they know that you might have a dozen telephone um, consultations booked in, but it won't look like a dozen. Some might take five minutes, some might take 15, some might take even longer. It doesn't count that either. All we're saying to you at this point in time is we're aware of the caveats, we're aware of the anomalies, but do try and make sure that your appointment books are as accurate as they possibly can be um, and your screens, because that's the data that's being extracted. Thanks, Carol. Um, just going back to, we're just going to look at through um, the Q's and A's now. And um, this is probably one for you, I think, Nigel. And what reason is there that you can't um, you can't make a staff a TR if they, for an antibody test? Why can't they be um, staff? Well, well, they're they're not a TR because they're not temporary resident in that area. They live in that area, so it's. I mean, the only way you could treat a member of staff is under the immediate necessary treatment but that's it's this isn't immediate it's not necessary and it's not a treatment so i personally would resist the pressure from any staff for you to do the antibody testing we know that the hospitals are doing it on their staff but i think they're looking at what is the level of infection within their staff groups but um, i think there is less value doing it in primary care Okay, and is there likely to be an option to refer staff for COVID testing who are not displaying symptoms if they're contacted by the Track and Trace service? Yes, we think so. But again, that's one of the many questions we're asking for, for clarification. In each area, there's a lead person for um, the tracing and the track and tracing. So we're asking them to produce guidance. Okay, lovely. Thank you, Nigel. Um, a bit more about cytology. Um, the smears that were due whilst the letters were turned off, do practices have to contact the patients, Michelle? I believe so. So I'm looking at Carol. So these are the ones that will have had letters? No, 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 no. So, sorry, Michelle. So sorry. The, the ones that had letters prior to the 9th of April, when they switched off, Dang those it. women will have had those letters. It's a case of the practice needs to somehow make everybody aware that the, the service is now being reinstated. You may want to contact those women, but, but it's not mandated. It will be, of course, when it comes to the third reminder, um, but we're not there yet. So all those that had letters and then hit that sort of bit of the time where we went into lockdown, it's really up to those women, but you can do it if you want. What And then what you've said is right, from 9th of June, anybody that should have been due a letter from 9th of April will start to get those letters. So it's, it's a, we're on catch up um, for quite some time. But like you said, Michelle, um, the national team are aware that often it's the same um, nurses that give the flu vax and if the pink's going to hit in November it's quite possible we're going to have a capacity issue in which case as you said Michelle it's great if practice can let us know we can we can apply to have the, the letters 
um, ceased, I paused again for a little while. Okay, thank you. Um, so with smears, we're now receiving HPV results. Are there any guidance on how we record and deal with HPV results in place of smears? Yes, there is, but I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> so, can we put it on the FAQs afterward? Because I can't remember off the top of my head either. Okay, that's fine. We will, we will do that later. Um, a few questions now about returning to normal and the physical premises issues. So, um, at cold sites, have practices stopped having staff at the front door in full PPE and checking temperatures? And then there's been more chat about, well, actually, we are or aren't checking patients' temperatures anyway. So, if you can just discuss that and give some guidance, please. So, I think the whole thing about premises or estates will change hugely um, after this because of remote working, more laptops, working in a different way, video consultation. So I think there is a bit we just need to be mindful of looking further ahead. In the immediate problem, most practices do not have somebody with full PPE at the front door letting people in and checking their temperatures. I, um, I think, and this is a very personal view, that when you see them on the television checking their temperatures on their forehead, um, it's, it looks good, but has, in my view, limited value. So we should be, you know, why are you doing it? So if somebody has a temperature, you're sending them away. Well, you can have COVID and not have a temperature. So it's not a test that's specific enough to screen out people who might be uh, a risk or not a risk, uh, excepting if they've got a high temperature, then you might manage them differently. But I think, you know, any patient coming into a cold site has got to be a... Um, a risk of having COVID even if they're asymptomatic. So, um, you know, as we're stepping down the hot sites and we make more use of the cold sites, we still need to be mindful of all the sort of basic principles of using the PPE, of getting patients wherever possible to wear their own face mask, of reducing the foot flow through the surgery, of spacing people out, you know, using video consultations, etc. So I think things will increase in terms of activity. But one of the messages we're giving to them nationally is this isn't going to go back to, you know, what's normal and what's business as usual. This won't be business as usual. And it, some people use the term which gives antibodies to people of the new normal. What is the new normal? Um, but I think we just need to mitigate the risk for the next few months and we're learning more all the time. So, you know, practices are great at being flexible and changing. And over the next few months, you will have to be flexible and you will need to change as we get more evidence, we know more, and this disease changes because we can predict it. But as we can see with the predictions and the modeling in the first phase, um, it was quite inaccurate. And temperature checking of all members of staff? Uh, I mean, if people feel ill, in the past, people have struggled to work when they've had flu-like symptoms and we have underplayed the risk to their fellow colleagues and um, patients. So, again, if people want to check temperatures, fine. I, I, I think more importantly is how people are feeling and if people have, are symptomatic and we know what the symptoms, the main symptoms of COVID are, they, they should not be um, putting other people at risk. If they feel happy to carry on working, then they should be working in a non-patient facing uh, facility and isolating within a building. Um, and if they've certainly got symptoms which could be COVID, then they should be going home. 
Okay, um, just more a little bit about premises, about opening doors. Should practice doors be actually open or should they be shut and the clinician going to collect somebody coming in? Are there any sort of any advice on patient flow and social distancing and doors? Yeah, I, I mean, I think if you're working a hot site and somebody's got significant COVID symptoms, then we, we one of the suggestions is that the viral load has an impact on the risk of infection. So certainly if you're working in hot sites, patient contact should be kept to a minimum. So the general advice would be you're triaging patients, take as much of the history as possible, and then you know, if they're a significant risk, get them to stay in their car and then get them into the hot site individually so that they spend the minimum time in the surgery or in a room and actually the room needs to be ventilated and cleaned after each one. Um, so I think there's that bit. If you're in a cold site, I personally don't see why you need somebody on the front door. And you know, as long as you've got big notices, which the practices I've seen have got big notices saying to patients, you know, contact us by phone, we'll, and the footfall in the surgery has been less. That might increase. But I think we also ought to be aware one of the major complaints going to MPs at the moment is they can't access their surgery. They're being told there are no appointments available. Now, I don't actually believe that um, because practices are managing it well and are offering appointments and doing it what I think is appropriate. But I think we all probably recognise that um, we've had 12 weeks of this and patients are becoming less tolerant of the increased um, demands we've got in, in the way we manage our work and just want their problem solved and, and get on with them. It's not quite that simple, as you all know. Okay. Um, one for you, maybe, Carol. Um, is there any tech that can help with staff social distancing? Maybe an app on their mobile phone which buzzes when Bluetooth says they're near another member of staff. Is there anything clever that can alert um, staff members for social distancing, possibly in the back office, I guess, with, in reception? We couldn't even get the track and trace proper. So um, that's a really good question. It's something we could probably ask NHS Digital about. Um, I'm not aware of anything at the moment. In fact, I'm absolutely sure there isn't anything like that at the moment. Helene, I think, has got something to say. Um, interestingly, the London School of Economics and PhD students have just produced an app about social distancing, which apparently you can download off um, uh, uh, the Apple uh, apps and if anybody's interested um i could send them a, send them a link to that i don't know how good it is or what it's like and i'm sure there's a purchase involved but they they are producing them at the moment and certainly lse has just done one there's Thank also you. there are also apps which will tell you when to take your tablets when to eat your meals and when to i think we need to use a bit of common sense as well i mean people know what two meters looks like people people need to be use use some sense helene do you want to come back tonight on that no, I was just thinking, you know, I'm sure you could, as Nigel says, set it up with Google and uh, what's her name? What's the other one? Alexa. Uh, Alexa, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm sure Alexa will probably do it for you. <laughs> okay, moving on. Yeah. Um, Jan, do we have permission, Carol, to step down a hot room site provided we can step it up again if we need to quickly? That's entirely up to you. It's, you know, I mean, you will still have some hot patients. Um, so it's a case of, of doing your own risk assessment and deciding for yourselves. I mean, depends as well. You know, some of you are doing um, hot rooms or hot sites for a whole PCN. So I, I would say to you, you need to you need to engage with others. If it's purely in your own surgery, 
you can do whatever is right for you and and yes so, so providing it can come back again but i think if you're doing it doing it for others then you really do need to engage and discuss and come to a reasonable um agreement about how that works so, so can i just be really clear what the lmc has been saying about this so managing patients who've got covid or think they've got covid is part of gms services where we think that changes is when you know we we diverted all our resources to managing covid we've now come to a position where looking forward that practices will reach capacity because of how they're managing the non-covid patients so as we go forward we believe that it's a reasonable um, demand on the national gp um, covid fund which hasn't been agreed yet and the the cr key criteria are that this is to purchase additional resources for reasonable reimbursable costs now we think as we go forward if we're just fo focusing on covid that's not unreasonable for the nhs expect expecting practices to deliver that if we're going to have hot sites and we're going to have work which is above and beyond general practice because this is exceptional circumstances then we think that should be part of what national covid funding pays for so if if the ccgs want to commission some hot sites that cover a large population then we don't think going forward that's an unreasonable call on the national covid fund and those are the discussions we're having with the ccgs at the moment but some of the suggestions are that your hot site might be 20 30 miles away from your practice and clearly in that position you may well not get patients going to it so in which case practices may decide to deliver it themselves or work in pcns and those are some of the discussions we're having with the CCGs and the STPs at the moment. So one question, Nigel, is there funding available to reconfigure practice buildings to provide a hot room? Is that under discussion at the moment? No. No, so not re, well, it depends what you mean by reconfigure. If you mean not rebuild your surgery, no. If, if there are reasonable costs and you can argue why you need to make some temporary adaptations, then go to the CCG and talk to them about it. I mean, one of the challenges in some of our areas, practices have collaborated really well and turned one surgery into a hot site or a community facility into a hot site. And now those practices and communities saying, hold on a minute, can we have our building back? Because we've got all these services coming back and we need to provide them. So there isn't a really one answer fits all. I think this is about having some flexibility and about looking at your individual circumstances and then, and where and if necessary, working with the CCG and working with us. Okay, thanks, Nigel. Lisa, I think we're going to say something a little bit about employees and travel and quarantine. Yes, it, it was just a brief mention, really. We've had a couple of queries from practices about if staff do go on holiday abroad, um, what's the advice, particularly around their contracts? So um, the advice is different at the moment. It's changing on the 8th of June and we'll post a link uh, on the FAQs to the government guidance. But after the 8th of June, um, people who come into this country are required to self-isolate for 14 days. And so we've had some queries from practices around what are the implications for that if staff do go abroad on holiday, if they can go abroad on holiday, come back and self-isolate for 14 days, do they need to pay them? Um, we have sought some informal advice. Um, we would always say that practices need to get their own specialist HR advice. We're not specialists. But the informal guidance that we've had is that staff need to factor that in. There's no obligation on the practice to pay during that period. So they could take it as a normal holiday or, or take it as unpaid leave. 
if the, the practice isn't able to accommodate them home working. Um, but as I say, get, get your own HR advice, but, but that's just perhaps quite useful to, to know. And we'll post the, um, the national guidance on the FAQs. Thank you, Lisa. Um, a little bit more about travel vaccines now, Carol. This one for you. We're going to a few finance questions now. Um, we're finding some of our travel vaccines vaccinations are about to expire and will therefore be wasted, some of which are very expensive. Can we claim for any of these? I doubt it. I doubt it very much. But of course, um, you bought them in good faith. They were probably going to be used. Um, it may well be worth a conversation with your um ccg but i i unless you've got some insurance or something i i wouldn't hold out a huge amount of hope but hey never say never worth a go okay um any news about the nhse des payments due for june for april will these be on april 19 or april 20 payments or an average of 19 and 20 do we know that possibly none of that um what what we what our understanding is is that it's whichever is the higher either of the actual for the first quarter of this year or what it was last year so um that's that's our understanding but again we've got lots of ccgs sort of looking at it slightly differently so we're just keeping a on top of what they're offering to make sure that um you get the higher of whatever you would get anyway lovely and Quarter two should take you up to the end of August, so not sure how this works with July activity. Do you mean if we start, they'll honour quarter two? So I think this is starting business as usual, then going back to a few other... No, the quarters are the, are the quarters. So April to June is one quarter, July to September is a quarter. So it's not from where we are at this point in time, but the four quarters of the year are set. So they start April, June, July, September, October, December, January, March. So those are your quarters. So we're saying at the moment that April to June is being paid um, pretty definitely. Second quarter, they're looking at higher or is it, you know, do they need to top up because you haven't had time to do everything? Um, again, we're just keeping on top of it. We're working with the CCG. So we need to just keep and, and just do what you can and, and any problems, let us know. Okay. And just remember, they, they looked at suspending quaff and other things till October. So this, that's still part of the discussion. So if you have capacity and patients are being seen, that doesn't mean don't do things opportunistically if it's appropriate or stop all long-term condition management. But what it does say is that, you know, that is, that is where we sit at the moment is that those discussions will happen and it will on, on a month by month basis, make a decision what will happen uh, in October. If we get a second surge, then we might find that, it, that all those things are delayed till the end of this year. But at the moment we don't know. Okay, um, FFP3 masks need to be fit tested and that can't be done in general practice. So was there any advice? Yes, it can. I mean, it, it depends. I mean, the first question is why you're using FFP3 masks because they should only be used for aerosol generating procedures. But if you are going to do it, if you speak to the CCG, I know some of their infection control nurses have been trained to fit test. And certainly I know in Hampshire, they've been going to practices and fit testing FFP3 masks. Okay. But my general advice is we shouldn't be doing any aerosol generating procedure in general practice anyway. That was the stuff that Helene was talking about earlier, wasn't it, with spirometry and things like that? Well, I don't think we should be doing spirometry in general practice at this point in time. 
Can I just make one more point about PPE, which is probably the inappropriate use of PPE is more dangerous than, um, you know, people who have an FFP3 mask that's not fitted and just chuck it on and think they're protected, but they're not. The, the PPE helps if it's used appropriately and properly, but there is a risk that people don't use it properly, which actually exposes them to significant risk. Okay, Sorry. No, thanks, Nigel. Um, a lot has been said about risk assessment when bringing in patients, for example, shielding patients. Should this be documented in their medical records? Absolutely. I think any decisions like that you make that you may need to come back and justify, you need to re you would be sensible to record why you've made that decision. And, you know, I quite often will say to GPs is, you know, when they say, can I do this, can I do that? There's the GMC test, the coroner's test and the Daily Mail test, which is can I stand up in front of a coroner and defend what I've done? Could I stand up in front of the GMC and defend what I've done? And what happens if it goes in the Daily Mail? Um, so if you can answer all three, then and that's what I would say here is if I'm making a decision about bringing a vulnerable person in, I'd record, you know, only briefly, you don't need to make sort of copious notes, but why you think it's it's better to bring that person in and safe to bring that person in. Okay, thank you. Um, so the practice is doing their very best to distance for two metres at work, but it's not very easy. Um, with track and trace, where do we stand with regard to a positive staff member and the rest of us having to isolate if we cannot be certain that we haven't breached the two, the two metre rule? And is a separate guidance, and of course it could take a whole, wipe a whole surgery out in one fell swoop if we're not careful. So that is the concern. Um, certainly with the current track and trace app, the uh, understanding is that you put it on aeroplane mode when you go into your practice, because if you're being exposed to patients, and this is probably more for the clinicians, but it does affect reception staff as well, you should be wearing PPE. So even if you walk past somebody who might then prove to be positive, that shouldn't affect you as an individual because you were in there and you wore PPE. So, you know, this is one of the lessons learned from the island. So if you're working in a, in a health environment where you're gonna be exposed to these people, um, if you don't want the whole of your practice to be wiped out, then you need to absolutely make sure people either turn off their mobile phones or turn it onto airplane mode so that track and trace does not work while they're in that environment. Okay, is there any specific guidance for general practice staff or is, is it more along the lines of what you said, Nigel? More along the lines of what I said. I suspect there may be because they are learning from what, what's happened on the Isle of Wight. But again, often the guidance that comes out is later than it's needed. Um, is there a basic risk assessment we can all use for calling in shielded patients? No, I, I mean, I think for most GPs, if you look at the, the categories, the, the categories make sense but you know if you just take something like asthma there is a vast difference with somebody that had one inhaler 10 years ago to somebody who's you know been on ITU three times in the last year and been ventilated um, the same with you know things like they left splenectomy out and then they put it in and now they're sort of umming and ahhing and I think the, it is down to literally individual basis you know and mainly practices know their patients well and will know those that are at significantly higher risk so I don't think there is a, an easy risk assessment to say these ones are okay these ones aren't. 
Okay, thank you, Nigel. That's into the questions. Carol, did you want to say anything about next week's webinar? Uh, yes, please. And I also just want to mention as well that, as most of you will know, that over the last few years we've done recruitment events where we've tried to attract, um, or you've tried to attract people to come and work for you, either as partners, salaries, whatever. We're going to give it a go um, virtually, um, and our GP fellows have been working really hard on this. It's going to take place on the 9th of July. I think they were uploading it to the website today for you to book into. Um, so it's worth having a look. You'll be, you'll be allowed to showcase yourself um, and talk to trainees, and there'll be facilitation done from um, those of us that work at the LMC. So that's just to alert you that if, you know, if you're going to be looking for staff, it is the week after the trainees sort of come out, and, and, and it's time when they really start looking for their next um, next move. So it's, it's quite good timing. Carol, before you go on, can I just add to that? Please um, do, Nigel. As you, as, as you probably know, that um, locums have been struggling to find work um, because uh, many GPs haven't taken holiday or because you've diverted things. Uh, and talking to some of the trainees, many of them would have come out in the summer and looked to do locums, but actually some of them now, having talked to them, um, are keener to find substantial posts, whether that be salary jobs or partnerships. So I, I would just encourage practices that need uh, to expand their workforce um, and may have had trouble recruiting, don't get stuck into the mindset as, well, we've tried before and it never, you know, it never worked and there aren't people out there potentially there will be um, and this is one of the opportunities you know we know that practices I know in my practice we've recruited four partners in the last six months and looking at the number of queries we've got of um, new clinical partners to access the £20,000 in inverted commas loan that's part of the new contract is not insignificant so I would just encourage people to, to think flexibly and think about what their needs are what their wants are and how they go forward. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Carol. No, no, that's fine. Um, no, I'm glad you did, Nigel. You know a lot more about it than I do anyway. And um, the only other thing I wanted to say is that, um, thankfully, Nigel is joining us again next week, um, as are the two regional CQC inspectors, Emma and Nicola, plus one of the local inspectors, Patrick, from the BSW area. And they're going to be talking mainly about the emergency support framework. Um, as you've seen, I didn't grimace then and I didn't giggle and I've been asked to make sure that they are going to be our guests and we have to be polite to them. Um, but they're going to explain about the telephone calls, about the questions. A lot of it's been published now. You can sort of gen up on it if you like. But I've already posed about 12 questions to them that, that have come up over the last couple of weeks from yourselves. So um, hopefully they will cover everything about how much notice you get how long it will take, who they need there, will there be any documentation needed, how it's going to work, is it telephone, is it video, is it this? So all of that I've already asked them to cover, but by all means, please join us and ask all the more difficult questions. Thank you. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you particularly to Nigel, Carol, Michelle, Helene, um, Dawn, Lisa, and Giselle in the background. Um, and as I said, this, we'll post the FAQs, we'll put the audio podcast up, and hopefully we'll see you next week. Thank you very much. Wessex LMCs, supporting you and your practice.